When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. Today, I'm delighted to be here with Elizabeth Kish, the president of Agnes Scott College from 2006 through 2018, and the current warden and head of the Rhodes Trust. Elizabeth, great to have you on the episode. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, to start out, could you tell us a little about your, your own educational background? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Sure. So I was uh, born in the Bronx in New York City, kind of a classic American immigrant story. So Kish is a very common Hungarian name. I was the, I'm the daughter of Hungarian refugees. Um, my parents and my older sisters fled Hungary after the Soviet invasion crushed the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. So I'm the American kid you know, born in, in, in New York City. I grew up there and in New Jersey and then ultimately Virginia, product of public schools uh, throughout that time, and then was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Davidson College in North Carolina, which is where I did my undergrad. So that's the that's the arc through through college. And, and obviously the scholarship helped, but how did you choose Davidson as the place you wanted to go? Yes, it was, uh, you know, the power of serendipity, actually. Um, it's a kind of a funny story, the way these things work. I, I missed the bus one day from my, from Fort Hunt, a true story, Fort Hunt High School in Alexandria, Virginia. I missed the bus. I was waiting around for the late bus and they, the guidance office announced um, that they had information about this scholarship program, the Edward Edward Croslin Stewart Scholarship at Davidson College, and I had time to kill, so I went down and picked up the brochure and thought, oh, well, I'll give this a go, and and ended up uh, winning the scholarship, but also like completely falling in love with uh, this wonderful liberal arts college in in uh, in North Carolina. Great, and so tell tell us about. Uh, your uh, process of deciding to apply for the roads and the selection, wondering, um, you know, a lot of people who've been through that, uh, they remember a distinct question that was sort of off the wall or out of the blue that that, that has stuck with them over the years. So, so <laughs> how was the road selection process for yourself? Great. I might ask it back to you too, David, as a, yeah, as a I, I'm happy to share. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in terms of why I, I applied, I mean, you know, Davidson had, um, you know, had a, a, a wonderful registrar, actually, a German professor who who kept his eyes out for uh, students who he thought might be good applicants for, for major postgraduate scholarships. And so he had Hansford Epps was his name, Professor Epps, Dr. Epps. And he he took me aside, I think, in my sophomore year and said, you know, you should you should maybe think about about the roads. And I was a philosophy major and really excited about continuing to study philosophy. 
So I'm not sure I would have even it would have ever occurred to me to apply if somebody hadn't tapped me on the shoulder in that way. And it's something that I've tried to to carry forward, you know, with future, you know, uh, uh, further generations of of young people, how important it is to encourage people to 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 go for these things, you know. Um, but I was very much thinking, wow, this would be an incredible opportunity to to continue to to study philosophy. Uh, Oxford was then and and remains, you know, a really significant center for for uh, for philosophy. So I did apply, and yes, there there are definitely moments that I remember from my my interview. Um, I think probably my my uh, favorite. So there, this was a two stage process at the time. So there was a state level and then a regional level, and and I remember uh, vividly at the state level that. Uh, that at one, I was I was being asked all these questions that really weren't about my kind of core area of of, of interest, um, but you know I was game you know gamely answering them, and then one of the one of the selection committee members sort of leaned back. He's a journalist. He leaned back and he said, "Miss Keish, I cannot believe that a woman of your level of education would hold such preposterous views." <laughs> You know, it was one of those moments where I thought, okay. So I said, well, actually, I don't think they're preposterous. Let's talk about that. You know, but it was one of those, you know, moments of of being being pressured a little bit in the interview to see how you respond, and uh, so that was kind of a a, a memorable moment. And then in, at the district level. Um, and this is kind of a funny story because it was Bernie Dunlap and I subsequently gave him a hard time many years later about this because we served on road selection committees together. Uh, but but what he did is he started the the uh, interview off by rattling off the names of 10 uh, Central European uh, artists, filmmakers and historical figures, you know, and in the heat of the moment, I could only think of answers to four of the 10. So I basically said, I don't know, six times in the first, you know, minute of my of my district interview. And so uh, I, I guess somehow, despite all that, <laughs> I ended up winning. <laughs> well, definitely one of the bits of advice one passes on is, is you've got to be prepared to say, I don't know, and move on to the next one. Um, I, I remember from mine, the one that really came out of the blue was I was asked what Aristotle would think if he was working on a GM assembly line. And and so it was it was a, a little hard for me to figure out just where it was coming from. My, I had worked on quality of work life and work organization issues. Um, and, and, you know, so they were trying to get the connection to Aristotle's deeper philosophy and I remember at the district interview, not so much for myself, but I remember sitting next because they also tell you, of course, the dinner is part of the interview process. And the young woman sitting next to me was this outstanding uh, pre-med, you know, who was going to be a doctor and no question. And the person next to her just said, so what would happen if, you know, you failed the MCAT and you couldn't be a doctor? And she said, well, I would go back and I would study again and, you know, figure out where I'd gone wrong so that... And he said, no, no, I mean, if for whatever reason you couldn't, and she just, she couldn't, she couldn't figure out because, you know, she, she'd spent her whole life and she was clearly going to be one. And so the idea that it wasn't going to happen. So, yeah, it, it, it can be grueling. I, I'm curious, when you went, um, you ended up staying on to do your DPhil in philosophy. Did you go 
with an idea that you were going to become an academic and that this was a way to to get a doctorate from there? Or, or was that something that evolved at, during your time in Oxford? It absolutely evolved during my time at Oxford. You know, I, I went to Oxford thinking that I would become uh, a human rights activist. I was, you know, I'd been quite active in Amnesty International and and, and other uh, rights organizations. And, and so it was just kind of an, ex, you know, I, I thought, oh, it'd be great to, you know, study some more philosophy. And and as I did that, and I did the BPhil, which is you know a two-year master's degree, um, uh, which includes a you know like a, a hundred-page thesis, and I just loved it. You know, I, I I loved working on it, and so it it I sort of stumbled into thinking, well, maybe I should do my DPhil, and then actually, st- I mean, very much stumbled into the academy as well. I will say because I I discovered a love of teaching. Um, while I actually, you know, to, to make ends meet because the road stipend didn't last that long, you know, it was just for a few years. And after that, I had to kind of cobble together ways of, of supporting myself. So I got a junior research fellowship and then I was teaching English as a second language and uh, just discovered how much I loved teaching. Um, and actually, when I was still working on, I hadn't finished my doctorate, my former professor from Davidson, who was had actually moved to Randolph-Macon College in Ashland, Virginia, um, he reached out to me because he was in a two-person philosophy department and um, his, his colleague was going on maternity leave. And so he said, you know, how about you come in and teach for a semester, you know, in the philosophy department? And so I did. That was my very first philosophy teaching uh, uh, experience, and I just loved it. And and uh, so I thought, well, I'll I'll give it a go. I'll go on the job market and see if I can actually get a an academic job. And and was fortunate enough to to land one. Yeah, and I I, I was going to ask you because I I was in a similar boat. Most of the folks who went over with us stayed for two or three years, did a second BA or a master's, and came back and. You know, for me, it was just my first chance to be outside the U.S., right? I, I wanted to get a fellowship that would pay me to that, but but I, I stumbled in. I, I was doing the, the taught masters like you, the MPhil in, in politics, but I couldn't face eight weeks on bureaucracy. It just seemed too dry. And so I did a, a thesis that then became the, the DPhil, but I had to figure out how to pay for it. And, and I've said to people afterward that that was a real life-changing moment because mm-hmm. For the first three years, I think when you're there, you're you're an American student, but you're 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 a student, and there you're there temporarily. Whereas once you stay, you're working full time. You start to see the world the way Brits and the rest of the folks there were seeing America. And so, as we'll talk about sort of the global leadership piece of of your, your leadership at Agnes Scott, I'm curious: was that similar for you? Did you find that your perspective change from being when you were sort of there in that initial phase as a student who was only going to stay for a few years to to working and living and really being immersed in in, in the British culture? No, it, it definitely did. Um, I, I I agree with you that there is that kind of pivot when you're you know, you're you're really on your own uh, in a way and much more immersed in the in the community. I, I would also say so I had studied abroad as a junior. I, I'd been to Paris and and uh, and studied in, in, in Paris. And I think it was at that moment that that 
which I think is so powerful about being abroad, that sense of self-awareness of being an American. It was kind of interesting for me because I grew up with a very strong awareness of myself as Hungarian or, you know, English is my second language. I grew up speaking Hungarian. Um, and I maybe even didn't fully realize how American I am until I got to Paris, where I was very much the American. Uh, and so you get this kind of, you, you know, you get this wonderful um, perspective, critical perspective on things that you consider to be, you know, natural, normal, conventional, that you didn't realize were culturally particular and distinct. And certainly had that in Oxford too. I think the other thing I, I felt at, in Oxford what it was it was such an incredibly international community. So my best friends were, I mean, I've met my future husband who's from Australia, but there were, you know, people from really all over the world. And and that was an it, you know, just learning from peers, learning from so many different cultural perspectives and backgrounds, and also ambitions. And maybe that was a, a special part for me. I don't know if you had the same experience of, it was wonderful to be in graduate school where not everybody wanted to be an academic. <laughs> um, actually to be around people who wanted, who were had very different ambitions, wanted to go into politics, wanted to go into journalism, um, uh, to become writers, etc. And and it, I felt like it was a really rich brew. As I look back at it, it was a very, very rich brew for for somebody who who did end up uh, pursuing a career in the academy. It kind of always gave me these other perspectives uh, to to draw on. Great. And so, so you you mentioned that it also gave you your love of teaching, and you went into the the academy. Can you tell us about when you made the transition from sort of the traditional faculty role? It looked like. When you got to Duke, you created uh, a, an institute for ethics. What, what was, how did that transition came about, and what was the focus of, of your of your institute there? Yes, yes. So I think that was for me probably the biggest pivot in my career, and sort of the leap of faith, both from me and from the people who hired me. <laughs> um, uh, so you know, I was a I was a tenure track faculty member at Princeton. I you know, although my degrees were in philosophy, I'd ended up in the politics department as a as a political theory political philosophy professor at Princeton, and I was um, you know on that track. Um, but I, I've always been somebody who you know, likes organizing things. And even as a tenure track faculty member was, you know, doing a lot of, of things on the side, both at Princeton and to, to some extent beyond Princeton, um, and had gotten more and more interested in ethics and questions about, I was involved in the Center for Human Values at, at, at Princeton. So I was on sabbatical. And that was when Duke was looking for the founding director of the, uh, then it was then called the Keenan Ethics Program. And uh, and uh, somebody called, called it to my attention. And I remember looking at that job description thinking, I would love this job when I grow up. You know, this would be amazing. This would be such a cool job. And, uh, and, and a, a dear friend who remains a dear friend and very much a mentor said to me, and again, I have tried to pay this forward. Uh, I'll never forget his words. He said, don't be an idiot, apply. <laughs> and uh, so I threw my hat in the ring, um, very much expecting that this was going to be a good experience to interview for something, 
but you know that, that I actually happen to know that some quite senior people were were also pursuing that role, and so here I was, a tenure track faculty member. I'd never run anything really other than student organizations and you know things like that, and um, and so I was maybe quite fearless going into the the interview. Again, looking back at it, you know that uh, when when thrown. Curveball questions, you know. Uh, how would you, you know? How I remember in one, one of the interviews because it was a battery of interviews. One, they said um, they asked me a question about, you know, what do you, what do you think is the the most um, uh, powerful uh, ethical philosophy, you know, that that is present in the in in the in the current context? And I was talking about that, and then they said, now how would you talk about this with a group of business leaders, you know? And I was like, oh, cool, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, merrily launched into, oh, how would I talk about this to a group of of, of business leaders? And and so in the end, you know, for them, for I think it was, you know, President Nan Cohan was very involved in that. This was one of her initiatives at Duke was creating this ethics institute. And I think they took a huge leap of faith on me because I was young, but they thought, oh, this is somebody who might be able to pivot and talk to different audiences. And what was unusual about the Keenan Ethics Program and made it kind of quite distinctive, especially at the time, uh, in the world of ethics centers was that it was from the beginning very focused on sort of theory and practice and um, very much with a with a focus on trying to be engaged in student life, in institutional life, and in significant outreach activities. So, so there were a lot of ethics centers that were primarily and very valuably kind of research institutes for people who were ethicists. And the Keenan program from the beginning was, was kind of as much a do tank as a think tank, if you will. And, um, and so I think what appealed in my candidacy was they thought I could maybe run with that. Um, and so it was a big leap of faith from them. And it was a leap of faith for me because I was basically stepping off the tenure track. I ended up as a, as a professor of the practice at Duke. And and entering into a world where, you know, I had to kind of make this work as a sort of entrepreneurial initiative within a large research university. And having made that leap and obviously been successful at it, when in that journey did you think you might want to be a, a college or a university president? And how did the opportunity at Agnes Scott come about? Yes. So I, I ended up, I guess I was in, at Duke for about a decade and it was a decade. And, you know, as I was getting kind of closer to to that decade point, um, there had been these sort of important, you know, because I was the founding director, I really cared about the longevity of this institute. And we had gone through some important milestones. One of the ones that was really important to me was as President Cohan retired and a new president came in, I wanted to be there and do everything I could to make the institute thrive under new leadership. You know, to 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 recognize that you know this had been a little bit Nan Cohan's sort of baby. We'd been very fortunate to have her attention and support, but to you know think about could it could it continue to thrive? And then you know this was a constantly evolving. It was quite a complex set of stakeholders. We, you know, we had an external funder as well as, of course, all of the, the politics within the university. And so I was very, you know, keen to, there was always a challenge up ahead, a challenge up ahead, trying to, to, to think about how I navigated that. Um, but I had hired an associate director 
And I actually vividly remember the, the moment where we had just gone on a fundraising trip. We were forming a board. We're starting to fundraise beyond our founding donor. And, um, and I just, I remember like looking at him thinking, you know, he'd be a great successor, you know, um, and, and, you know, is ready for, you know, to, to lead an institution like this. And, and meanwhile, I was coming up on that decade, you know, milestone. And I thought, well, I, I, I think I want to be open to opportunities. And people had mentioned a few times the possibility of college presidency, but somehow the, the timing was never quite right. And so with Agnes Scott, you know, I had a search consultant reach out to me. I'd been nominated for it. I really knew nothing about Agnes Scott. I mean, absolutely nothing at the time. And what happened was a kind of, I fell in love with the place, even at a distance. You know, I remember when the search prospectus arrived and the the mission statement was right there on the first page. We educate women to think deeply, live honorably, and engage the intellectual and social challenges of their time, period. And I thought, Wow, you know, what a great mission statement. And then there was also part of me because I'd worked on mission statements. How did they get it down to one sentence? These people really know what they're doing, you know. Um, so so it was it was that sense um, in that in that search process. So it was both a sense of not my work is done because I still had so many plans, but that I felt like the institute had 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 gone beyond infancy and maybe adolescence and was now in a good place. And I'm happy to say it has continued to thrive, and I'm really really happy and proud about that. And in fact, my associate director what did become my successor after a, a national search. So all of that's very very happy um, and good. And and meanwhile, with Agnes Scott, that sense of this being truly aligned with with things you know I cared about and then as I went on the interview you know I just thought wow to be around these feisty smart women like this is incredible <laughs> so so yeah that's how it happened so so tell us a bit about I, I have had the privilege to to visit its absolutely gorgeous campus one of the nicest parts of of the Atlanta region um what what was where was Agnes Scott when you arrived and what, when you did your sort of initial assessment and putting together that first plan, what what were the challenges? What were the, the, the big things that you thought were going to focus on at that stage? Yes. Yes. So, you know, when I arrived, I, I was succeeding a very successful uh, president, uh, Mary Brown Bullock. Um, and so the 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 college was was doing quite well. I think she had really come in at a time when the enrollment had plummeted and had, had been the, the president who sort of um, turned things around and gave, she was the first alum to be president of, of, the, of Agnes Scott and had just done really transformative work to kind of give the, the place a sense of, of confidence in itself and, and, uh, and, um, you know, uh, uh, to, to do well, you know, in, 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 in multiple ways. So I think I came in with a sense of, I'm just going to be like taking this, this institution, which is in, in fabulous shape, you know, and, and, and taking it to the next level. And so that first year, you know, I, I spent, uh, sort of quite typical, we did a kind of fairly conventional strategic planning process, very inclusive, very, you know, lots of, uh, conversations with faculty and with with staff and students and alums and 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 all of that it was very kind of blue sky um and what i you know what we came to 
it, at the end of that process was uh, it was the, the plan was called engaging a wider world and the kind of heart of it was this idea of creating something that we were calling the Center for Women's Global Leadership, because it felt to me as I did my listening tour that, you know, kind of women's leadership and global engagement were two things that were were sort of central to the DNA of, of Agnes Scott. So that was, you know, the kind of the halcyon days of the, my first year. So the second year was when the financial crisis hit. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, that was the, and the, this 07, is the global one, 2008, global one. right? 2008. Yeah. yeah. So 2008, uh, was, uh, you know, and, and to be honest, actually, even before the, the financial crisis hit, we started a strategic financial planning process. So, I mean, I was actually, that was a fortunate thing that when the crisis hit, we already had done some work and had recognized quite frankly, that the business model was unsustainable, that, you know, Agnes Scott was um, doing a really wonderful job with students, was enrolling about 200, 220 students a year. It bounced up and down, but it was in that kind of steady state size. And that that literally was not sustainable. It was, you know, that we could not stay at that level. Um so we'd, we'd sort of, you know, we'd, we'd kind of articulated that uncomfortable insight and then the, the financial crisis hit. And we were like every college and university in the country, we were in survival mode because in our, in our case, about 40%, 45% of our income, annual income came from the endowment and that endowment had you know plummeted in value. Also, our students and their families were were stretched. Um, so we you know we went into kind of uh, not I, I wouldn't say survival mode you know because we weren't it, we, it wasn't an existential crisis for us. It was a long term existential crisis. We knew that we were not in a sustainable place, um, but we you know it was a lot of the grand ambitions of that original strategic plan had to be scaled back or paused. Um, and in fact, I'm actually quite proud of everything we accomplished on that original plan, um, despite the fact that we were really trying to, you know, we were every every year, it was cutting the budget, trying to, to you know, cross budget gaps, always prioritizing the experience of students, really trying to work hard uh, to, to maintain the, um, you know, the quality of the liberal arts college experience. And, and I, you know, I think we did ex actually extremely well. But as with a number of schools, I think this happened to a lot of schools that you kind of kept it going for a few years past the, the, the great financial crisis. And then around 11 or 12, 2011 or 2012, it, the reality really hit that, OK, um, we are going to have to do some, first of all, some significant budget resets um, and we're going to have to think big if we're going to um, uh, make this school thrive. You know, there was just a very, a very strong sense of a, of a kind of an existential crisis at that point. And, and so we did a, um, you know, had a fantastic board of trustees and, and a really good CFO. And we did this kind of roadmap to 2020. I remember that was the strategic financial plan. Um, and and there was this, you know, we're going to have to do some deep budget cuts. We did the usual, um, you know, voluntary retirements and 
sadly did have to do some some reductions in force, but worked really hard to make those as, as minimal as possible and to kind of keep the ethos. This was a very warm and, you know, friendly community and, you know, worked really hard to keep keep it going through that very tough time. But all the time, we, we knew that we couldn't cut ourselves to prosperity, like you just could not do that. That was you had to have a big idea. And so that's when we launched a very different kind of strategic planning process, um, uh, which was the, the process that ultimately led to our the signature program summit. Um, and that had you know huge impact on, on the success of Agnes Scott. Great. And, and I, I plan to ask you a lot more about Summit. But before we go there, just for the listeners, one thing that I think is important to understand, because you faced the, the challenges a lot of small private liberal arts colleges did, but you were unusual in the sense of the, the very high percent of high need students and students of color that Agnes Scott was serving. So I think that likely made that vulnerability with the financial crisis maybe even a little greater for, yes. for you at that point. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, we were, uh, you know, Agnes Scott, I mean, I'm very proud of this, you know, is, um, uh, has a high percentage of Pell Grant students, high percentage of students of color. Actually, uh, now, um, and, you know, by the time I left, uh, you know, there, there was no racial group in the majority. It's actually, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really beautifully diverse uh, college, but it meant that our students were, um, very, you know, their families were profoundly stressed. And because we had come up with actually ethical principles, you know, for this whole budget cutting process and had workshopped that through the faculty and everything else. And number one was we put our students first, you know, we put their experience first. And so, so we had to do some really tough things in order to make that happen. Um, but yes, it was, it was not a, it was a tough time. It was a tough time. And- there are a lot of parallels, obviously, in the history between Agnes Scott and Chatham. As you know, I think I joined just a year after Chatham went all gender. And and in its case, you know, my predecessor, like your predecessor there, had come in, had saved the institution. She'd done it through adding graduate programs, adding the whole focus on sustainability of the campus there. But ultimately, you know, the market research we were looking at that only 2% of young women in high school were interested in single sex. And the fact that we had a significantly smaller endowment than Agnes Scott, that ultimately led the board to the decision that, you know, grad is now, it it worked great for 25 years, but we can't keep cross-subsidizing. So that same, like, this isn't long-term sustainable. When, when when you were in that second moment and you were looking at it, did you and the board, did you look at the possibility of all gender as, as one of the things, or was it, we're going to, we're going to stick with this as our core and, and figure out how to make it work? Yes. Great question. And, you know, and of course, as you say, I mean, actually at, during my presidency, in fact, two weeks into my presidency was when um, Randolph-Macon Women's College announced it was going uh, co-ed, uh, uh, and, and many, there were, you know, quite a few women's colleges that, that, you know, I I mean, for reasons, every, every institution has its own context and its own set of kind of assets and, and challenges and everything else. In our case, there was a very strong sense that, I mean, I felt it personally, but it was, you know, deeply shared by the trustees and the, and the alums and the faculty, actually, as well, of 
you know, that that sense that um, there was, I mean, it was more of an intuition than anything else that like there is space in the women's college universe in the United States for a, um, obviously Spelman is right there in Atlanta and is an incredible institution as an HBCU, but that there was space for a Southeastern, you know, Southern women's college to be a kind of seventh sister or, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, to, 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 to be able to weather the challenges of the present moment and maintain its focus on being a, a women's college. And so we, you know, we really went into that strategic planning process with that as a starting point. Um, we went in open eyed, I would say, you know, so so recognizing that we would see, you know, what came out of the of the process. But that was very much kind of I would say that the two things that were um, as a starting point core was liberal arts and uh, being a college uh, for for a, a trans inclusive, I would say, but, you know, a college for, for women. So, so you mentioned that, that it was quite a different planning process the second time around and that you came to the signature initiative of Summit that, that really had a transformative impact on the college. And yet the, the two core themes of Summit, uh, women's leadership and global uh, leadership and, and engagement, w- were there in your first plan. Right. Yes. That, that was what you had called out as the center. So, so how did this one differ and, and how did it lead to the difference in results? Yes, yes. So, you know, it's it's a lot of strategic planning processes in, in, in higher education, including the first plan that I was involved with at Agnes Scott, are very kind of internally focused. They're, you know, they are, um, they, they ask the different stakeholder groups that already know and love the college, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, what will make us even better, right? And so, you know, that's what we did the first time around back in, in 07, uh, uh, 06, 07. Um, as we thought about, first of all, the impetus for the, the second plan was to become financially sustainable, you know, mission aligned, but if you will, market relevant, like we actually had to be market relevant. We had to find a way to make Agnes Scott appealing to students so that we would have significant increases in in enrollment. So that was a very different starting point. It's not like, what do we think will be fabulous for (laughs) for us? It was, what does the market actually think uh, will, will, um, uh, you know, how does the market inform this strategic planning process, which is pretty actually radical for, I think, for a lot of higher education institutions. And I was, and you know, interestingly, we, we we started off with a um, still a lot of internal conversations, and we're thinking, what's the big idea? What is the what what will really make us stand out? And it was one of my colleagues, actually my vice president for enrollment, who said, "Well, maybe we should talk to this firm out of Baltimore called Art and Science because uh, they do really interesting strategic positioning studies." And so I I reached out to them and. You know, they based, you know, they were really helpful because we were struggling with how do we know what will actually move the needle on enrollment? And so they do this, uh, you know, this this kind of research where they go out to your inquiry pool and your admitted applicant pool and they test uh, different 
emphases that your institution might have, but they test it not revealing that they're working for Agnes Scott. So they're actually working with like actual students who are in your inquiry pool and admitted applicant pool and um, and asking, you know, asking them to, in essence, pri prioritize and reprioritize different schools on the basis of different descriptions of those schools. Um, so what what we ended up doing was, which was a very uncomfortable process, <laughs> was to ask ourselves, what are the mission aligned ways in which we would consider dramatically changing the focus of Agnes Scott? You know, what could we do? What could we come up with that would be, and you know, the, the, the folks at Art and Science kept saying, it has to be big and bold. Somebody like who really doesn't care about you needs to be able to see it, you know? <laughs> um, and so we had, that was an internal process. And I kept reminding uh, the, the faculty all the way through, like we are only testing things that we ourselves were willing to test. Um, and so we, we ended up with eight, eight things that we were, we were going to test in this, in this study and, um, global and leadership were two of them. And they, you know, as you know, they were the ones that had emerged, uh, as you were saying from the, the previous strategic planning process. And they were the ones that kind of really sang to me personally. And so for me, you know, the uncomfortable realization was that, we were going to go out to market and test whether these ideas would predict a growth in people actually applying and admitted students actually enrolling. So both applications, uh, completed applications and yield on admits and that whatever came out of the study is what we would <laughs> do. And, and I remember the moment in a faculty meeting where, where you know, one of the faculty members said, oh my gosh, so this means whatever comes out of the study, we're actually gonna do. And I said, yes. And that's why you know, we have spent a number of months you know, like arguing over what we're willing to, to go out there and, and test. And, 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 and of course, the other thing which I, voiced much less often on campus, but certainly kept me up at night was what if none of the, you know, what if none of the ideas that we were testing, you know, uh, like what then? <laughs> um, and uh, so we, we did the study, you know, it takes a whole year um, because you're actually doing the inquiry when students are inquiring and you do the admitted applicant, you know, students are, are, are trying to decide where they're going to enroll. And and of course, we were continuing to try to be innovative as we went along during that year. We weren't just sort of sitting there, but obviously very eager to hear what would emerge. And what, what emerged was, thankfully, a, a very, very clear result um, that, that if we took global and leadership and baked them in as absolutely integral to the experience, and so we actually tested different levels of you know, global different levels, leadership different levels. But if we really baked it in, uh, that it would have a significant impact on on our particular market. And you know, the beauty of this is that um, uh, you know you can always think about these hypothetical students out there that might fall in love with you. But but in fact, the you know when it comes down to it, practically speaking, if you are trying to grow enrollment at a 
at a, a small institution, it's the students who've inquired about you in the first place that you're trying to get them to apply and the students you've admitted that you're trying to get to enroll. And if you can move those two needles, you know, you, you will get to a very different place. And so it was exciting that global and leadership came back as you know, the things that would grow, that would really move the needle. And just a quick postscript to that, the third thing that was not quite as strong at the time, but was clearly emerging as something in, important uh, uh, for the college and our, our market was careers, sort of a, a liberal arts college with a strong focus on careers. We did not go in that direction, but subsequently, Agnes Scott has done another one of these studies because Summit has to continue to evolve. And so it's been really exciting that my my successor has now made that strong focus on careers, sort of her signature part of Summit, um, the, the kind of the additional strand of, of Summit. Great. And I'm curious when you talk about making it integral. So even though you went through that very data driven, elaborate process, it came back to two things that you had really called out in your first plan. So, yes. so what was what was different in practice that could have such a significant impact on enrollment? You, you'd already said, you know, we have a center, we're focusing on these things, but to make it tangible enough that it was really impacting, you know, those who were applying and then those who were ultimately coming. Yes. So this was the this was the kind of fascinating moment I think of that that process because. You know, our vision for the Center for Women's Global Leadership was something that would maybe impact 25 students a year, right? Um, and I actually, as I looked back at that initial strategic planning process, I was reminded of a particular moment where one of my trustees said, you know, we shouldn't be trying to create a Center for Women's Global Leadership. We should make Agnes Scott a Center for Women's Global Leadership. And you know that kind of resonated as a, as we got these this these results back but then what we needed to do was actually what does it mean for every student for every student to have as a core experience global learning and leadership development and that's where incredible leadership from the faculty um, came to the fore you know we really uh, and I give huge kudos to to the faculty I mean this was a emotionally fraught experience for, for, for them as well, you know, thinking through, okay, how are we going to make this happen? And we, we, we went into this very intensive planning process with a, you know, a group of about 16 faculty and staff who, who stepped up, uh, elected by the faculty, so nominated and elected by the faculty, all the faculty representatives. And what we were trying to figure out is how could we make it integral? And so where we ended up with Summit was um, first of all, recognizing that too often study abroad experiences happen later in an undergraduate. So we, we had pretty good percentages, you know, maybe about uh, 30 to 40 percent of students did study abroad while they were at Agnes Scott, but it was in their junior year, the typical traditional thing. And what we realized is if it's going to be baked in for every student, it needs to be in the first year. It needs to be in the first year. So what does that look like? How do we create something, you know, where, you know, so how, how do we create something that, that, um, that is, uh, uh, becomes part of the gen ed core curriculum. And so, you know, it was the faculty who designed this incredible course called journeys, which was every first year student in the spring of their first year 
where they study a set of topics, um, some shared and some about a particular part of the world, and then travel with faculty in the middle of the semester so that they have this you know, intensive 10-day immersion and then spend the rest of the semester reflecting and writing and, and everything. And, you know, we, we had, um, so, you know, that was for every student, a kind of integral experience. And similarly with leadership, how do we make leadership something that every student is, you know, it's a, it's a core course, but it's not a, a business school course. It's a liberal arts college course about leadership skills, like critical thinking and writing and uh, public speaking. And how do, but how do we create something that is, um, that, that really picks up this, this um, vision for leadership as making a difference in the world, you know, engaging this, as our mission statement said, engaging the intellectual and social challenges of your time. And how do you, you know, create a leadership curriculum that's, that's grounded in the liberal arts in, in that way. So it was, it took a lot of arguing and debate and, you know, um, uh, just incredible creativity. Uh, on the part of the faculty to to create something that was integral to every student's experience and then baked in so that they didn't have to pay for it. And so then then the trustees had to take their own leap of faith and say, we are going to invest in this program because we believe that um, it will, you know, we think the data shows that it will drive enrollment growth and um, and that actually it, it will ultimately lead to the college being in in, in better financial uh, uh, better financial conditions and and it you know it was both those those core experiences and then also creating a, um, a a kind of board of advisors for every student so much more proactive intensive advising as part of the the whole summit uh, core design. Yeah, I, you, you mentioned that the subsequent uh, iteration of Summit has put more of an emphasis on on the career side, but I thought that the two other components of Summit, the the board of advisors, uh, uh, having having several different individuals uh, all helping to shape the individual, and then the the digital portfolio with the idea of the the students curating their own social media or digital identity was a really were interesting things that while not necessarily preparing you for career X or Y, obviously were highly relevant to that. I, I was curious on, on the board of advisors, how much of that was already there and it was a matter of just, here's a way to, to highlight it, package it, what, what had to be new in putting that together? Yes, uh, great question. So it was, um, we had a few of the pieces were in place, uh, although, I mean, you know, we, we had, Agnes Scott at the time had a pretty traditional um, academic advising, you know, there was sort of pre-major advising, which was done by a very small, incredible, committed, dedicated uh, staff. Uh, and then after that, you know, you were, you had faculty in your department who, who were your, your uh, departmental advisors. And, and we, you know, we, we had heard the, the, we'd heard sort of a refrain from students actually about wishing that there was somebody beyond their faculty, their academic advisor who could advise them. Um, we had been strengthening career planning and had hired an amazing uh, person who remains there and is just incredible um, to, to lead uh, career planning at, at, at the college. 
um, and had moved career planning under the academic affairs division so that there was a sense of this is all part of, you know, it's an integrated uh, push. But we hadn't gotten to the that sense of, of um, what will it take to actually have, you know, holistic advising. So, I rem- you know, the, it was actually one of the really big, I would say, innovative elements of Summit and also one of the the, the ones that took some persuasion on, on you know, for, for a number of uh, groups on campus to accept, which was that we actually needed to create a whole uh, um, group of summit advisors, as they're called, who are basically holistic advisors, and that they don't just hand you off uh, once you pick your major, but they continue to work with you, you know. And so, so you know, I think that was a piece that we really added as part of the the summit design, um, and and it was it was an interesting, you know, there were faculty who absolutely embraced it from the beginning, who understood the limitations of the traditional academic advising model and realize that students actually need, they need somebody who can think about them holistically about where they've come from, how do they transition to college and then through college and beyond. And so the summit advisor is that sort of the the person who stays with you all the way through. Um, And then, you know, your, your academic advisor, your career advisor, uh, and your peer advisor, you know, that that was another model that we'd found very helpful is to have upper class students playing a, that role. They kind of come in and out at different times uh, and maybe play a really critical role at different at different times. And, so and how does the matching of the peer advisor and the and the, the advisee happen? Yes. So that happened. And, you know, to be honest, that may have evolved because a lot of things about Summit have evolved. They, you know, even while I was there, there was so much constant iteration and evolution. So it may well have evolved since then. But while I was at Agnes Scott, it, it, um, uh, it, you know, it was, I mean, we, we obviously had created a, a larger uh, academic advising team, the, the Summit advisors. And this then became a Part of their job is looking at the incoming class, advertising for upper class students and making sure that across multiple elements of diversity, you know, uh, racial, ethnic, disciplinary, uh, geographic, you know, so that there was a peer advising team that where every student, uh, you know, could see in the team you know, somebody that they could, they could relate to. And, um, and the, the peer advisors would then at the time they would actually audit the, the fall semester um, uh, first year course. And so they were sort of part of, they got to know their advisees, you know, through that, through that connection. Um, And of course it was an amazing professional development opportunity for the peer advisors as well. So, you know, I love it when, when, uh, you know, it's a win-win because the students who are doing the advising are learning. And of course, obviously, they, as a near peer, they're tremendously helpful uh, to those incoming students. I, I would have thought one sort of logistical challenge of that is with the success you had in growing um, mm-hmm. as a result of Summit, you had more new students than you necessarily had uh, upper class. How, how did you make sure you had enough students available to, to be peers for all the new students. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, it wasn't a one-to-one match. So it okay. was actually peer advisors had several advisees. Um, 
And so that was that was what made it, I guess, possible. The other piece I would say, and this was, you know, again, kind of, I, I think so often with these planning processes, you you end up leaning on strengths you already have. And part of the beauty of a pro, of a signature program like this is that you, you're able to connect the dots. We also had these these learning centers that had peer tutors. And um, so the Center for Writing and Speaking, the Center for Math and Science, um, and then also the Social Science Research Center. And as part of the whole kind of summit process, we ended up, first of all, co-locating all those centers. And that amplified the, you know, that was a whole other set of upper class students who were available to, stu- to, to students um, beyond their peer advisor, they could also go to the Center for Writing and Speaking and work with a, with a, a student advisor or the, the Center for, for Math and, and Science. And so that was a, uh, you know, that, that sense of, of, I guess the other piece of all this is that the use of students as integral components of this um, advising infrastructure was also a way of bringing the leadership uh, curriculum alive, because those were leadership opportunities for for the upper class students, you know. So it's kind of, you know, I, I love that on a especially a small college campus, you can really do that where where you know, you know these that the, you connect the dots for people, you know, that they're actually um, uh, they are themselves learning leadership, even as they are advising, you know, the the uh, the incoming students. Great. So I'm curious, when when did you decide that it might be time to think about making a, a, a new move from Agnes Scott? And what was it about the job as warden warden of Rhodes House? I'm guessing being a warden was not something was ever in your career ambitions. Um, so so what was it about the, the role as the head of the Rhodes Trust that, that, that attracted you? Yes, so uh, I de- you're you're definitely right. Uh, Borden was was not uh, something that was on my on my radar. So you know, even at, while I was at Agnes Scott, the Rhodes Trust was going through this incredible transformation. Um, and interestingly, you know, some some components that I think resonate across you know across these very different institutional types in that uh, the Rhodes Trust had. Um, also experienced a lot of challenge in the in the wake of the the financial crisis and had to had to transform itself in in really big and bold ways and so to become more global to become more intentional around working with scholars uh, creating a character service and leadership program as as being part of the core experience for all those scholars so all of that had happened. Um, and I was aware of it, as I'm sure you were too, that there was, you know, there was a sense, you know, actually we were being asked for money to contribute to the, the Rhodes Trust, uh, but there was just a whole lot more happening in Rhodes House and with the, the Rhodes community. And so, you know, I had I had come, I, I really felt that there is, I've come to feel this, that there's sort of an arc to leadership journeys. And I felt that at the Keenan Institute at Duke, and I you know, was starting to feel that at Agnes Scott, that I would either need to kind of reinvent my own presidency and sort of, um, OK, if I'm going to be a 20 year president, uh, I, I would need to have a sort of second presidency um, or it was really time to pass the baton. Like at Summit, I felt was, 
you know, really embedded. Um, and, 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 you know, the board was terrific. The faculty had really seized hold of Summit. It, you know, it just, it felt like the, 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 the place was humming. And, and I felt like it would be a great moment to attract somebody who could then take Summit on to the, to the, to the next level, you know. So sort of the, the second Summit president, so to speak. Um, and so I, you know, in consultation with obviously my, my husband and also uh, my board chair, we decided, you know, I would announce, I had said, I'm going to, I'm going to said to the board, uh, to my board chair, you know, I'll, I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'll announce a year in advance so that, you know, you have time to, to, to run the search. So we did that. <laughs> and then of course I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be unemployed. <laughs> um, so, you know, I had never done that before. I mean, it was, I'd never done that in my career. I'd never kind of, said I was leaving someplace without having um, having a, a, the next chapter, you know, defined. But that was actually a really exciting time. I threw my hat in the ring for for several things, and you know, several of them didn't work out, and I totally understand why. You know, I learned a lot from that. Um, and so it was in that period that Rhodes House was celebrating 40th the 40th anniversary of women, because you know. Women could not be Rhodes Scholars until 1978, and so uh, the, or 20, 1977, I guess. And so this was uh, 2017, and um, and there was this celebration of the 40th anniversary of Rhodes Women. And because I was in my last year at Agnes Scott, it felt like a slightly indulgent thing to just go and go to this thing. But I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go because it'll be fun, you know. So I went, and it was an amazing gathering, and so inspiring to be there and also so inspiring to see the energy in Rhodes House. And so about two months later is when the then warden, Charles Kahn, announced that he was, uh, you know, he was going to be stepping down. And I really think that, again, the power of serendipity, if I hadn't been there, you know, it might not have like resonated with me quite so much. And so I decided I would throw my hat in the ring and and so I had a couple of, you know, things that I was I was pursuing, and this was one of them. And uh, and it, you know, it was uh, it it was incredible that it, you know, uh, it kind of came together. And I remember that um, I had come, I'd flown over for for the interview, and I was used to sort of American interviews where you know you have four stages of interviews, and you know you spend a day and a half, and absolutely everybody interviews you and everything. So I thought this was like stage one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I'd just done my like two hour interview and it was a lot of fun. It was great. And I was in the hotel room and I get this call saying, you know, we want to offer you the job. And I was completely flummoxed, you know. <laughs> so uh, and I, I remember calling my husband in a fit of, you know, kind of feeling very emotionally overwhelmed. And, and, and he said, you know, it is summit on steroids. You know, it's kind of global and leadership in <laughs> in a big way. Um, so, so I, I, uh, that was, you know, it was very good advice. And, uh, and so I, uh, I, I accepted the role and it's been an incredible journey, uh, ever since. So, so, so you, you've already mentioned several of the ways in which the, the, the roads has evolved over time. I think when we were both there, I thought of the Rhodes House and the Warden, you know, you would get invited and have a glass of sherry and, and an occasional dinner. But really, you know, other than getting the scholarship itself and the, the, 
you know, the amazing sort of um, uh, financial benefits and the recognition that came with it, there wasn't much else done, right? It was just, you had that. I had a fondness for Rhodes House because my wife and I got married there. It was a great venue for that. But but otherwise, you know, it, re- it really wasn't very significant. So I, I wanted to ask you about the, the multiple transformations that have happened in the role of the trust. So, so one of those is is it went from a single scholarship, the Rhodes, which is obviously very well known, to now being a, a sort of uh, umbrella of of several different um, very prestigious awards um, and fellowships. The, the Mandela Road Trust, the Atlantic Institute, the Schmidt Science Scholars, and the New Rise Program. I, I wonder if you could talk about uh, those and, and how they've sort of evolved and what impact, if any, they've had on the, the original Road Scholarship Program. Yes, yes, great. So, so yes, I mean, you're absolutely right that for the really the first hundred years of the, the Road Scholarship's existence, um, it was it was this one, I mean, very prestigious, the oldest international postgraduate scholarship and and uh, with really a focus on, as you say, bringing scholars to Oxford and then um, uh, in essence, you know, having the Oxford experience be, you know, what what was special and transformative for, for everybody. So the this kind of transformation of the trust really began at the centenary um, so 2003 is when the Mandela Rhodes Foundation was established. And this was a quite remarkable partnership between President Nelson Mandela and the Rhodes Trust. So the Rhodes Trust was the donor to, to uh, make, you know, to establish this scholarship program that brings students from all over Africa to South Africa uh, for postgraduate study and a leadership development uh, curriculum. And so it was really driven by, from President Mandela's point of view, a sense that um, he, you know, he, he thought that a partnership with the Rhodes Trust would be valuable for his vision of a new generation of leaders for the African continent, focused on certainly education and leadership, but also reconciliation and entrepreneurship. So those are the kind of the pillars of the, 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 the Mandela Road Scholarship. And I'm really proud to say that now, you know, age 19, uh, Mandela Road Scholarship, there's been over 500, actually over 550 Mandela Road Scholars. They are doing incredible work in the world. 19 of them have actually gone on to become Road Scholars as well, which is really wonderful. So that's been a great addition to um, the Rhodes Scholar community, uh, but the Mandela Rhodes Scholars are doing extraordinary work. And they pri- actually, before the Rhodes Scholarship started doing it, they started doing this kind of intentional leadership development work with their scholars. So to your question of how has the Rhodes experience been um, influenced by having launched these partnership, these core partnership programs, I think that is one that is a very powerful uh, benefit that we've had at the Rhodes Scholarship is learning from the work that Mandela Rhodes has done around that as we also launched our kind of core focus on character service and leadership. More recently, so uh, starting in around 2016, is when these new core partnership programs started to develop. And so when I joined the trust, they were kind of the the Atlantic Institute and Schmidt Science Fellows were kind of in startup mode. Um and so the, the beauty there is that, you know, 
with each of these, each of these has a shared sense that the world needs thoughtful leadership from people who bridge disciplines and cultures um, and that they will learn from being in community with each other. And so in the case of the Mandela Roads, it's, it's all of these young people from around Africa who come together and have that transformative experience. In the case of the Atlantic Institute, these are mid-career fellows who are actually selected by seven uh, fellowship programs around the world that uh, each focus, each of them focuses in different ways on equity. So racial equity, global brain health equity, um, indigenous leadership, social equity, uh, you know, all sorts of different kinds of health equity. Um, and what the Atlantic Institute does is it forges this global community of these emerging and mature, actually, leaders and is a community of solidarity and kind of catalytic power to help them continue to work on those questions of impact and learn from each other and collaborate with each other. So we've learned a lot from them about how, and we're actually, this is one of the things we're really focused on now is how do we, how do we enable Rhodes Scholars and others in this fellowship of fellowships to connect with each other around shared goals and aspirations and to support each other's work. And Atlantic Institute has done beautiful work there. Uh, the Schmidt Science Fellows is, again, a different stage. It's the postdoctoral stage, and it's scientists who want to pivot to a new discipline. But it's also a curriculum kind of modeled on our character service leadership program for educating the next generation of science leaders. And then the, the most recent one, which we just selected our first cohort, is RISE. Uh, and uh, both Schmidt Science Fellows and, and RISE are in partnership with Eric and Wendy Schmidt. And with RISE, what we realized was you know, we pick students when they've already, they're, they're graduating from college for the Rhodes Scholarship. And, and yet there are so many brilliant young people out there who, who may not make it to that level, you know, without having some boost, some opportunity. And so uh, the, the, the vision behind RISE is to find brilliant young people between the ages of 15 and 17 from around the world and to give them that boost, but also put them in community with each other and similarly create that kind of um, public spirited, you know, leadership development curriculum. So, so each of these is, you know, and, and like the RISE, with RISE, we've learned so much about selection and how do you do um, kind of, how do, how do you try to do culturally de-biased selection? We're learning so much there. And so there's all kinds of wonderful feedback loops as we, uh, you know, as we bring all of these uh, programs together in, in kind of shared learning and solidarity and, uh, and connectivity. And, and of course, it's wonderful for the Rhodes Scholars because we have Schmidt Science Fellows coming in and Atlantic Fellows, and we had almost 100 Rhodes Scholars involved in RISE selection, you know, so, so there's a lot of beautiful synergies, you know, across, and actually we just selected our inaugural ANIT Prize winner. This is a new social impact prize that's open to Mandela Rhodes and Rhodes Scholar alumni who are making a positive difference on the African continent. So that's another kind of beautiful way in which these two fellowship programs are collaborating um, and trying to amplify that ripple effect, you know, of the, the people that we have selected and invested in. 
That's a, that's great, and it's wonderful to hear about the, the richness and the connections among all of them. Uh, another significant change from from when we were both roads was at that time, in terms of fellowships like the roads, there was really just the roads and the marshal, as I recall, and a lot of people would apply for both. Since then, and I guess you know, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. There, you've had the Mitchell in Ireland, you've had the Schwartzman for China. My daughter was fortunate; she just won a Knight Hennessy at Stanford. Oh, you know, congratulations! But, but you have now a lot more competitors out there for these. Yes. You know, trying to find the 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 best and the brightest. Uh, what what has been the impact of that on the roads and the thinking in terms? Of, uh, are any of the things the roads now does inspired by that? Do do you see? Is there uh, a, an issue about the ability to? to keep attracting the folks that, that the roads most wanted to attract? Yeah. So, I mean, with our, our strategic plan uh, for the Rhodes Scholarship, which we call Lifelong Fellowship for, for Global Impact, we very much acknowledge that, that we're swimming in a much more competitive ecosystem of, of global scholarships, which, by the way, I think is a great thing because there are so many talented students out there. And so, you you know, you want more opportunities. And I would add McCall McBain is, is a new scholarship uh, at McGill. Uh, so there's, you know, and I, I suspect there are more in the planning as we as we speak. And as you say, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And so, you know, we have to make sure that we are um, attentive to, you know, to, we, we can't rest on our laurels. Right. I mean, that that is absolutely the case is that I think it's good for us. Actually, it's good for the Rhodes Scholarship to know that. Uh, you know, we have to pay attention to, and as we do in our plan, we talk about this, the excellence of selection and outreach. You know, we can't, we, we have a wonderful system that has worked really well for 119 years, uh, but we have to keep innovating and adapting. And, uh, you know, we have been rolling out a lot of, of kind of new resources for selection, um, really focused on that. We have to really focus on the excellence and the parity of the scholar experience. So our scholars, you know, similarly to what was happening at Agnes Scott uh, at, at the Rhodes Trust, we are getting a more and more diverse group of, of Rhodes scholars. It's a really beautiful thing that, you know, we, we are now more inclusive in our selection processes and, and much more global. You know, now students from anywhere in the world can apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. So we have to also understand that coming from so many different places, the experience of coming to Oxford, you know, that that there is uh, more we need to provide to enable uh, scholars to to thrive uh, across that whole spectrum of of background and and experiences, um, and. So all of that kind of parity and excellence. And then I, I'd say the, the third piece is, is how do we lean into the fact that as the oldest of all of these scholarships, we have the incredible resource of our 5,000 living alums. And how do we ensure that, um, that scholars in residence are able to connect to those alums and to learn from them and to engage with them? And so it, you know, it, it is another kind of impetus for saying, you know, part of our secret sauce is that we have this amazing, you know, group of, of alumni. And I guess the last thing I'd say is that, you know, while we are, I think each of those programs, and I know that the people who run all of each, you know, each of those, those programs, um, each of them 
is, um, you know, is doing something distinctive as well as something related, you know, and there's also a lot we can learn from each other. And so a couple of years ago, um, uh, the, the McCall McBain Foundation and Rhodes Trust partnered to create a, a kind of loose affiliation of a group called the Global Fellowships Council. And we actually meet regularly. So so with Knight Hennessy and Schwarzman and, and uh, McCall McBain and a number of other uh, uh, scholarships. And so we like the idea of being willing to collaborate as well, because I think we can we can learn uh, learn good practices from each other um, and actually make make the experience better for the for the students who are on all of these all of these programs. So it's both you know it's both collaboration and you know some healthy competition, which is all good. Well, it's it's great to hear that, that that both are occurring at the same time, and certainly, as you say, there's there's more than enough amazing talent out there in the world. And so, one of the things you touched on there, which I know has taken up a lot of your time over the last few months, is is the great success in diversifying the 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 base of scholars coming. But that's also prompted some controversy. You had one of the Rhodes alums write a an op ed in the Wall Street Journal that. Uh, you know, challenge this, and was it going against the original meritocracy? And I think that that also must be a part of a, of the broader question you deal with, which is, you know, the complex le- legacy of Cecil Rhodes, and and what does it mean for our time? And so, I think there must be a lot in what you've learned and in dealing with those that college presidents across the U.S., right, are, are, are dealing with challenges around legacy, around these issues. And so I, I, I'd love if you just reflect on sort of how you've approached that, what you've taken away from that experience. Yes, no, it's such important work, you know. I, I, I really think it's it's such incredibly important work to, to kind of honestly engage with uh, with with difficult legacies, with complex legacies. I mean, in our case, certainly Cecil Rhodes himself and his his um, you know profound linkages to British imperialism and its impacts on on the African continent, um, uh, but also the history of the scholarship as as well. You know, where you know the the first African American scholar was selected back in 1907, which is quite interesting. Like, so there was no racial bar. Uh, against selecting black scholars. But then the legacy of Jim Crow and racism meant that the next one wasn't selected until 1962. So you think about all those decades of brilliant African-American students who, you know, never got a chance to to be Rhodes Scholars. And of course, the exclusion of women until the late 70s and, and much more besides. So, so you know, I, what, what, what I have found... Um, you know, in in the work that we're doing with our board and with alums and with the scholars and residents is that it is all about having that conversation. It's about forthrightly acknowledging that we are on a learning journey that, um, and, and, you know, this goes back to the, your point quite rightly about we have gotten some pushback from, from it, such as that Wall Street Journal article, you know, to be very forthright about we believe in excellence. We are a unapologetically a merit scholarship. Um, We also believe that inclusion is in the service of excellence, you know, so that that actually um, ensuring that students from every single background, you know, are are applying for the roads, that we are training our selectors to to look for excellence, 
to look for what students have actually done with the opportunities they have had, um, you know, to, to be really, to, to develop excellence of judgment about that. And it's very complicated and it's not easy, but all of that will make, will make us, it, it's in the service of excellence and it's in the service of merit. Um, it's not contrary to it. It's not, you know, it's not picking people because they are from an underrepresented group. It is that as our uh, applicant pool becomes more and more diverse, our our uh, scholars also, you know, are reflecting uh, the world. They're reflecting, you know, they are this beautiful, you know, mosaic of the of the of the world. So so embracing that and but also engaging those debates. I mean, I think it's important that we're having those debates and important that we're in, you know, trying to be in dialogue with people across our alumni community and beyond it, who who are raising these questions. And so everything from, you know, on the one hand, why do you call it the Rhodes Scholarship? You know, uh, 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 and you know, there, I mean, we we my own personal view, and this is not officially from the trust, is that I feel like it is a constant challenge for us with bearing the name to say you know, here's our history and here's how we are responding to that history. And here's here's who we are today. You know, here's who the scholars are today. Here's who the scholars have been who've done incredible work in um, all kinds of struggles for, for freedom and liberation and, you know, better and fairer and more inclusive organizations and societies. And so that's the legacy that we're proud of and that we are you know, very much committed to to continuing to invest in and to expand. So, but it's an important conversation to have, even though it's never a comfortable one. <laughs> I love the idea that the new Rise program will try to identify that talent earlier in the process and give them the opportunities. I assume one of its metrics will be how many of these might end up getting selected for one of the other fellowships in the portfolio. Yes, definitely. Although one of the other things that I love about Rise is that there may be risers, you know, Rise winners who actually, once they finish college, want to go and, you know, start their own organization or, or you know, do other sure. things. So it's yeah. not, no, it's uh, not you know, definitely not going to be all going there, right? But, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But but I certainly do. I will. I look forward to celebrating the first Rise winner who, who becomes a, a Rhodes Scholar or any of the other kind of uh, major fellowships. Yeah. Um, one other strategy for for broadening the inclusion and the talent pool is is identified in the new plan, which is the idea which Rhodes has already done of broadening the geographic diversity, right? Identifying new places of talent which aren't currently eligible and doing. Can you talk about how that has occurred and and how you go about? I assume a, a significant part of your job is raising the money to enabling that to occur. It is absolutely. And so, you know, it's, I mean, we realized, and this was, I, I give a lot of credit to my predecessor and to the board at the time, that sense that for us to remain a preeminent global scholarship, we needed to be truly global. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, Cecil Rhodes's vision for the scholarship was was basically the British Commonwealth and the United States and Germany. So kind of the English speaking world uh, you know, and so, I mean, he had a very global vision in mind, and he actually thought creating the scholarship would build a more peaceful world. So there was a lot of, you know, very interesting stuff in his vision for the scholarship. But of course, the world is a much more complex and diverse place. And um, so we have been over the past 
uh, gosh, five to 10 years now, um, uh, raising the funds to expand and to move into parts of the world that previously were not represented. So China was very critical. I mean, you know, for the same reason that Cecil Rhodes thought Germany should be included. I mean, we, you know, we think it's critically critical that uh, a, um, uh, a global power like China, that there are Chinese scholars at the table in the conversations at Rhodes House and as part of the, the Rhodes community and vice versa, that, that scholars from other parts of the world are interacting with, with Chinese scholars. We've added Israel, we've added Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, uh, you know, we've added Saudi Arabia. Um, we are very focused now actually on Africa, and this is part of our sort of legacy equity inclusion effort is um, I, you know, my goal is to get to 32 scholars a year from the African continent, which would equal the number from the United States. And so give Africa um, as a continent, you know, multiple countries within it. We're at 21 now. So we want to get to 32 a year. Um, so we've you know, recently added scholarships in East Africa and West Africa, and we'll continue to expand on the on the continent. And, you know, our frankly, a major source for the University of Oxford of students from Africa and want to continue to, to, to be focused there. Also added the global constituency. So now students beyond our existing uh, uh, geographic footprint are, you know, are able to, to apply for the road. So we've had winners from Afghanistan and Cameroon and Indonesia and Russia and, uh, you know, Korea. And so uh, we will continue that process of, of both with global, but also with, with expanding our geographic kind of place-based selection. So I know we have an effort underway for Japan and for uh, Latin America. We want to add some Latin American scholarships. And uh, a recent one, which I'm very excited about because it came from scholars in residence who were agitating that we have a Commonwealth Caribbean scholarship, but nothing for the Pacific. And so we're trying to add a kind of Pacific at large scholarship because that too is a critical part of the world. It's a part of the world that's profoundly impacted by climate change. Um, it is, you know, a really important part of the world geopolitically, you know, all kinds of things. And so to have uh, to have some scholarships available for students from, from that region. So it's been exciting to be, you know, looking for people who are invested in, in this global effort or who are invested in their own region of the world and want and see the benefit of having the best and brightest from their own country or their own region be a part of this amazing global network. And, uh, and so that work continues, but it's a, it's a lot of fun. Elizabeth, just a, a final question. Um, I'm really grateful for you taking the time sharing both of these sort of transformational leadership journeys. Um, as, as you give advice, you, you've mentioned several times paying it forward. So when someone approaches you about, I, I'm thinking about being a college or a university president, what, what, what bits of wisdom do you share with them in terms of thinking about, you know, that role? Yes. Oh, and I, I have, it's been so much fun to, over the years to see people, you know, who I interacted with go on to presidencies and to other, other leadership roles. So, you know, I guess one of the, one of the bits of advice I always have is to, you know, to, as you're starting out in your, in your career journey, to find those opportunities to think institutionally, to, to think more broadly, to be, um, you know, whether it's uh, 
join a strategic planning effort or to join, you know, so, so there, you know, to, to find those opportunities to get to start to get to know things beyond your own field, you know, faculty are excellent at knowing about their own field, uh, but to, to develop that, to broaden your toolkit, to understand, you know, those that, that, um, uh, the expanded set of issues, the the institutional issues that are that are out there, to keep your ears open to you know to be involved in the kind of the national di- dialogues and debates about about higher higher education, and also to to give back and serve. I mean, I'll mention that I was an alumni trustee of Davidson, and I think it was one of the reasons why Agnes Scott was willing to take a um, you know kind of a uh, they had to take a leap of faith on me as well because in some ways I wasn't. A t- entirely conventional uh, presidential candidate, but you know they they saw that I had had that trustee role for eight years and had you know beyond being the director of an ethics institute, I'd had this role of thinking about the trajectory of an institution. So I also advise people beyond your job, think about how can you. Um, you know, what, what are the organizations you care about? And, you know, it's not, you don't do that work because it's instrumental and career focused, but it is how you continue to build the skills and the experiences that can then position you to be, um, you know, to, to, to be a, a candidate for, for a presidency. You're also seeing, you know, a growing number of people who come from somewhat non-traditional pathways. And I've also had some great conversations with folks on, on that, you know, who are museum directors and government agency heads. And, you know, and so similarly, you know, talk to them about how do you educate yourself about the unique and distinctive norms of the academy. And and uh, and there are ways in which you can do that kind of by giving back to your alma mater, by being involved in various forms, you know, to, to then be um, a kind of more legitimate candidate, you know, if, if that's a if that's a, a pathway you, you you want to pursue. Great. Well, Elizabeth, thanks so much. It's been wonderful to reconnect with you, and congratulations on all the exciting things happening. Hope I'll have a chance. You know, my wife and I, as I mentioned, got married in Oxford, so we'd like to try to get back to visit, and uh, hope we will not be too much longer before we're able to go back to. England. Well, we would love to have you come back and walk down memory lane in Rhodes House, which, by the way, is under construction. So it will be amazing when it's when it's fully renovated. Uh, But, David, this has been so fun. And, you know, I just want to also just say how proud we are of you and your leadership at at Chatham and uh, just, you know, really all the the wonderful work that you're doing there. Um, So it's been a real pleasure to, to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much.